Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. And last month, the Democratic Party started the process of changing the way it nominates presidents. The goal, apparently, is not to really blow up the process, although plenty of commentators have called for that in recent years, including me. But what they are starting to do is sort of pry open this Byzantine step-by-step approach that has sort of evolved over the last 40 years that puts Iowa first in the process. We've all heard about the Iowa caucuses. And of course, we probably all heard about the rampant problems that came with the Iowa caucuses and some of the criticisms of putting that caucus front and center, square up first in the nominating procedure for president. So a lot of commentators have kind of rushed into the breach in the last few weeks to talk about what the DNC has put forward. But the most recent suggestion that came to me, and I thought it was quite provocative and quite interesting and quite different, came from Noah Berlatsky. Noah may be familiar to some of our regular listeners. He writes about political economy for the fantastic newsletter, The Editorial Board. He's a Chicago-based writer, and he's been on our show before. And he just wrote a new piece for The Editorial Board called Drop Iowa, Make DC First. Noah, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Hi, thanks for having me. It's delightful to have you. You're uh, definitely putting something forward that I haven't seen anywhere else before. And you know what? There's so much stuff out there these days that I just want to give you a golf clap right off the top and say (laughs) kudos to you for having something kind of original. First of all, what's your argument here? Why should the DNC get rid of Iowa? I think we're all kind of getting on that bandwagon. And why Washington, D.C. up first in the presidential nominating process for Democrats? Well, the reason to get rid of Iowa is... I mean, the most pressing reason is because they really screwed up last time and there should be there should be consequences for really screwing up to people have incentives not to do that. So that's first. The second reason is that it's just not. Well, the second reason is it's a caucus and caucuses are really discriminatory against people who have disabilities or who work and can't get time off work. So that's not good. And the third reason is that I was just very a very white state and i don't think it's good to one of the most important things for the democratic party is that it's one of its most important commitments should be anti-racism and you're not having all this attention early on focused on the state with a very white demographic isn't isn't a good way to showcase that so those are the reasons that i'd say we should move on from iowa the reason to move to washington dc instead is well, one big reason is that it's it's about 50% Black African-Americans. So that, I think, is a good move away from the white demographics in Iowa. And the other reason is, I think that actually, like, one of the big things to think about in picking sort of a first state is what policies are people going to sign on to to try to cater to that state. And in Iowa, it was like ethanol subsidies, which is no good. I mean, ethanol, everybody knows ethanol subsidies are bad. They don't actually help the environment. Like it's a huge, like it's basically a food tax, which is like a really regressive tax because you're using all this farmland for corn that you could be using to grow crops and lowering the price of food, both at home and abroad. So it's just, it's just a really bad policy. But in DC, the thing that you'd end up focusing on most is Washington DC can't vote for Senate and they can't vote for House. They do have electoral votes for president, but they're basically disenfranchised. 
And so it's this large, predominantly black electorate that's disenfranchised. That's a major issue, both just in itself, because if there were two senators from DC, which there should be, like those people should be represented, the filibuster would probably be abolished. We'd have, and Biden would have passed a ton more stuff. You know, I mean, like it's a huge roadblock for progressive legislation. And it's a roadblock because people are disenfranchised. The map is heavily, the Electoral College map is heavily tilted towards rural white voters. And that means that there's just this, popular things can't pass and there's this huge reactionary bottleneck. So we want Democrats to feel urgency there. We want to highlight that the system is unfair and that people are disenfranchised and putting DC first would be a good way to do that. I thought it was a really, it was an eye-opening idea because it may be by design. I mean, you and I both know, because we both write for the same editor that you don't always choose your headline. Although having an editor choose your headline for you is a major service. I can't come up with headlines for squat. <laughs> and so I really appreciate when our shared editor does that for us. But what I really loved about this was I looked at the headline. My first reaction was probably what he slash you intended, which is no, that's silly. What are you <laughs> doing here, man? But then you read the argument, you read the, the article and it it is kind of compelling because it, it's, it's, first of all, let's agree that it's a shocking situation, okay? This should shock the conscience of Americans where you have a majority black population of Americans who basically have a partial right to vote slash no right to vote. They get kind of these three electoral votes, which aren't kind of even direct representative democracy for president. They cannot vote for a representative in the House or the Senate, okay? They get a delegate. Her name is Eleanor Holmes Norton. She's a long-suffering member of Congress. She's a member of Congress. She's a delegate. She can, she can be assigned to committees. She can speak on the floor. She cannot vote. So she's sort of a member of Congress the same way that Captain Crunch is a military officer, okay? It's, it's sort of the idea of it, but it's not real. She's incredibly smart. She's incredibly acerbic. She would make a good member of Congress if you live in Washington, D.C., which I used to do, you do not have a vote. So can we agree, if we agree on nothing else in the U.S., population of majority Black Americans without an ability to vote is a problem we should have fixed 150 years ago, if not way before that. Okay, let's get that. <laughs> we'll stipulate that one. But I, I kind of like the idea here of saying, you know, maybe we're sort of a, over-obsessing about who goes first. It's, I mean, we're on air on radio in New Hampshire, which is sort of like, talk about having some OCD about going first. It's literally a state law that you've got to schedule. The Secretary of State is constrained by state law. They have to schedule the primary first. If they don't, I don't know, apparently a puppy crushing factory will open up somewhere. And so, I, maybe, so it sounds to me like you're saying, one, let's not obsess about that. Two, if it's going to be sort of a showcase for PR purposes, then let's make this case number one and let's do something to highlight the fact that we have disenfranchised majority black Americans who are stuck here. And if nothing else, we can at least give them the first voice to balance out some of the lack of representation they have. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I mean, I think people, I think the, I think people over obsess about the order of the primary process in terms of winning, because I mean, you look, I mean, like you, like it seemed like you look at Iowa and you say, well, it's people who win in Iowa, like it doesn't necessarily 
matter that much right. you know it's, I not, mean, like, it's not predictive it's not predictive. it's not it's not especially predictive and for reasons which are like pretty obvious i mean like last time i mean last time they totally screwed up but i mean the people who won were it was sanders and Buttigieg, right Buttigieg sort of narrowly right. won and then sanders won and it kind of didn't matter basically because the of the same demographics issue that you know we were talking about is that that they both were much stronger with a white electorate, but then they, you got to electorates that were more diverse and you got to South Carolina and they didn't have the same kind of support. So it kind of doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter for who wins what order the primary comes in often, I think, but it matters a lot in terms of like what issues get focused on and what issues people are going to be talking about for months right and 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 who's highlighted for those months as the kind of average american voter right i mean because part of what iowa is it's like this is heartland america you know i mean it's like months of people traipsing around cornfields and saying this is heartland america this is this is what america looks like right so that would be a different version of what America looks like if you've got people wandering around appealing to black voters in DC. And I think that that's, so I think that, I think it's more, I think it's less about who's gonna win. Cause I, I think the primary calendar kind of ends up evening out over time. Right. You know, I mean, right. because you, ha- I mean, you have to, as long as you're, I mean, like the way it is now, I mean, like, cause it's the same thing with Clinton and Sanders, right? I mean, they, once they got, you have to have strength in this in the South and in black communities, and she did, and he didn't, which I was I wasn't happy about because I would have preferred he'd won, but that was the way that was the way it went, and I don't think that that's I don't think that shifting around the calendar is going to make that much difference in that to the sense, outcome. but it, right. to the outcome, but it can make a lot of difference in terms of how the party thinks of itself, what issues are considered important, so. Right. And what issues we put forward as representative of our values and right. you know, sort of what we're prioritizing. Although I will say we had Congressman Jim Clyburn on this show a few weeks ago. And oh, wow. we got some great behind the scenes stories about that night where he issued his endorsement. It was, it was great uh-huh. stuff. If you haven't heard that, listeners, check it out in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. But look, it's, it's the not very dirty secret in, in American politics that Jim Clyburn made a critical endorsement that sort of signaled to a lot of people who take his his word very, very seriously that this was sort of the direction he was thinking that may have moved a critical segment of the African-American vote in South Carolina. And as went that vote, so went the nomination. And so there is a potential practical impact to your idea, which is if we get a substantial majority African-American population to weigh in, since we know that Black people, especially Black women, are the backbone of the Democratic Party, it might kind of make sense to hear from that segment of our base, kind of front and center, up front, first up, that could that could be a good head nod to where this thing is ultimately going to go. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's important. I think with Jim Clyburn also, I mean, the thing about endorsements is it's often hard to Obviously, politicians have some interest in saying, well, my endorsement is what mattered. But they also often, I mean, they like they make endorsements. Like Jim Clyburn isn't going to go endorse somebody who his constituents don't like. 
But so I mean, right. there's 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 definitely a back and forth in terms. It of- both moves and reflects. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, let me let me hit you with this idea. I am going to go ahead. You've changed my thinking. I, I'm going to say All this right. upfront. I wrote an article <laughs> a ways back that kind of played out some ideas that I'm I'm looking to kind of update it. And I may do that in the next few months if our mutual editor is is on board with that. And that that I'm I'm going to present my argument in just a second. But I'm going to amend my ideas to incorporate yours because I think you've sold me that this isn't about affecting the outcome so much as it is who for months of political reporters wandering around places, whose stories are we going to tell? What issues are we going to put front and center? Is the lack of representation for Americans who live in, by the way, it's not just DC. What if you live in Guam or Puerto Rico? What if you've served in the armed forces for goodness sakes? And you are, I mean, you can, you can put on the uniform, but you don't get to vote. This is, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. But anyway, here was my argument. Let me lay it on for you. What I basically put out is, I think while you're going about opening up the process for, for the nomination, why stop at some minor, like who goes first, who's on first, what's on second type stuff? I want to think about in the age of Trump, nothing matters except winning. Nothing matters except saving American democracy from the ascendancy of he who shall not be named. And that means that we have to think about what, what's the outcome here? We need our strongest possible nominee at the end of the nomination process. So my argument was, I love the good people of Massachusetts. I do love them. I do. But I don't think they should have as strong a say in who becomes the nominee as the good people of Arizona. And maybe I'm sucking up to our radio listeners in New Hampshire, but New Hampshire remains a pretty purple state. I think they should also have an enhanced voice in the process. In short, I believe that there should be more weight given to the, the, the nominees, the nominating votes that come out of swing states. I know I'm going to anger our listeners in most of the country, but there are really only between 10 and 20 states that are truly contested in the presidency. And those are the states that matter. And so what I want out of a nominee is I want to see, can you win in Wisconsin? Do you have what it takes in Arizona? Can you pull it off in Georgia? And yes, can you win in New Hampshire? I'm a lot less interested in whether you can run up the score in California. I I love you, Californians. I love you. Please, all of you subscribe to Beyond Politics. So that's my reform. I'm I'm willing to go with yours. We'll put DC first, but then I want to give added weight to the vote that comes out of swing states. What do you make of that? Am I crazy? I guess I'm just kind of, I mean, it's sort of tricky to do for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, like which states or swing states kind of switches and you can't always necessarily tell which are going to be, I mean, it depends on all sorts of things. I mean, like demographics change over time. So, I mean, Florida looks less like a swing state than it used to. Texas maybe slightly more. What if you yeah, did like so- a weighted average, weighted average of the party, the, the two party vote in the last two presidential elections, right? And so you kind of start with, you give a bump in waiting to any state where Democrats got, let's say more than 40% of the vote. Yeah, and I'm also just like, I'm just really reluctant to have Democrats in the business of giving some people more 
voting power than others. I mean, I feel like that's a like that's been a problem. You're not into you know, superdelegates. Like superdelegates are like somewhat different issue. I'm thinking more about, I mean, just like the way that like our current system just like gives so much power to like white rural voters. And so you end up, you know, I mean, like it's like, this is kind of why we're sliding towards fascism is because the Republican party has such disproportionate power. And so that really creates a problem. So I'm reluctant to sort of like reproduce that in the primaries by giving some people more of a vote than other people. And I also, I think it's just like difficult to game out like how, that, like to even set it up would I think be difficult because of the way things change over time. So I can't say I'm a fan of the idea, but. I, well, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do two practical things. One, I'm going to take this conversation and I'm going to, I'm going to call our editor and I'm going to say, all right, look, I want to take a <laughs> run at this because I want to <laughs> convince Noah Berlatsky. That's the <laughs> first thing I'm going to do. The second thing I'm going to do is we're going to wrap up this show in just a minute, but I want to take this to social media. I'm going to, I'm going to hit up a little summary of your article and this show on Twitter and on Facebook. And I want people to weigh in. So find Noah. You're at, and I'm going to spell this out. You're at, at N B E R L A T on Twitter. All right. I memorized that. That's that's how that's how geeky I am. I'm at Matt L. Robison, R-O-B-I-S-O-N on Twitter. So we're going to post this. I want folks, please follow us on Twitter. Check out this discussion. And I'm going to ask you, what are your ideas for blowing up the nominating process? And what do you think of Noah's idea about putting DC first? I'm even going to do an at to Eleanor Holmes Norton, and I will ask her forgiveness for calling her the functional equivalent of Captain Crunch. I respect her a lot. I used to work with her staff. I I think the world of Eleanor Holmes Norton. And finally, I'm going to ask people, please subscribe to Beyond Politics wherever you get your podcasts. With that, we're going to wrap here on WKXL. Thanks so much, Noel, for being with us. All right. Thank you. 